Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. I mean, you, you, know, you, you know you're having a bad day when you haven't had a laugh at any stage or found something funny. Um, and I think, I mean, whether it's professional or amateur or just, you know, part of the, the fabric that keeps us going, you know, without, without that smile, because I mean, apart from anything else, we're, we're, we read and we're told that, you know, the actual physical act of smiling is good for us. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humour with you. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is one of the most capped cricketers in the country's history. A former classy England captain, he was inducted into the ICC Cricket Hall of Fame in 2009 and was named in the country's greatest ever Test Eleven in 2018. After a record-setting career as one of the world's most stylish left-handed batsmen, he continued his cultured career as a hugely successful commentator, journalist and broadcaster. He was subsequently honoured with an OBE by the Queen. His creative commentary and communication continues to confirm why this former blonde bombshell cricket captain is always on the front foot when it comes to fun. David Gower, welcome to the Humorology Podcast. Well, thank you, Paul. And that's all we've got time for. What an intro. <laughs> what an intro. Well, you've had a hell of a life, so I, it needed that amount of time to actually tell the full story, David. As someone who's led teams at the highest level, I mean, obviously having captained England to the ashes and many other things, is leadership enhanced by laughter? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think sport is one of the great generators of humour. I mean, anyone who's spent time in a dressing room, be it amateur or professional or somewhere in between, knows that um, you know, the interactions between players are absolutely vital. I mean, there is tension which needs deflecting at times. There are all sorts of situations which either need or get humour anyway. Um, I mean, pretty much any, any day, each and every day you're in that sort of environment. At some stage, someone's going to crack a joke. 
Uh, it might go down well, it might not. Um, but I think all of us need that sort of protection, to be honest, because um, when something as emotional as a personal performance in a professional sport, so imagine you're at Lords walking out to bat and you've got these you know, 25,000 people applauding you in, um, you know, that in itself is a great feeling. That, I mean, that, that to me was always a lovely, lovely feeling. And if you get your 50, 60, or you know, better still, your 100, then everything is fine. Um, but if you get that dreaded first ball duck or something close to it, then you are now in a very, very dark place because that, you know, all your dreams for the day are shattered. All your emotions are now being tested. Um, and yes, it's probably sensitive of people when you get back into dressing room, for instance, to be sympathetic. But actually then you, you need to lighten the mood. You need to remember that whatever you've just done wrong is actually not that important in the greater fabric of the world. So actually the humour comes in very, very quickly. Uh, and to illustrate, I mean, here's, I mean, I've got one immediate story on that, uh, which made me laugh at the time, luckily. Um, we were in Delhi many, many years ago, 1981-82. Now, um, uh, an Indian tour was testing in those days, four months in India. Fabulous in many, many ways. Fascinating, uh, ultimately, but testing on the field. And I was next to bat after Jeffrey Boycott and Chris Tavare had taken about eight days to put on, put on 100. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> bless them. But it's one of those slow moving games. The wicket falls about five minutes before lunch and I'm next in. And I've got in the dressing room, I've put together a plate of curry and rice and dal and stuff, uh, just in anticipation of lunch. But I've got to put that down. I pick up the bat and gloves, white floppy hat, walk out to bat. They're still clearing oranges off the field because the crowd, you know, with the success of the wicket, they you know, celebrated by throwing fresh fruit onto the field. So it takes them 10 minutes, say, to clear the oranges off the field. I line up to face the first ball. It's an, uh, to use the technical terms, a little inswinger from a guy called Madden a little edge onto the pad, big appeal, and I'm given out LVW. So all that waiting, all that, you know, building up this innings on a pitch that had runs, but plenty left in it. So I walk back up into the dressing room, goes through the crowd who are all shouting, you know, my mood is uh, dark at this stage. I'm not a happy buy. And you walk into the dressing room and one of those great tourists, fellow called John Lever from Essex, sort of looked at me quietly and said, well, at least your lunch is still warm. <laughs> now, that's, I mean, okay, it's a tricky one there because that could have gone down badly. He might've been wearing that lunch had I reacted um, not so well. Um, but actually at the moment, uh, you know, you kind of sit down um, and it sort of, it, does, it did kind of help on that occasion. But it also highlights something else, which I think is quite important. It kind of depends, very much depends, who says the line. Because John and I got on very well. Um, you know, he was a, a man with a natural sense of humour, a very good tourist. So all those situations you get into in places like India, Pakistan, Australia, West Indies, wherever it might be, you know, there's always something going on. You know, he was always someone who could deflect and entertain and basically bring you up. So the fact that the line came from him was important. Um, I can think of others who, if they delivered the line, they would have been wearing that lunch, I can tell you. Well, it is interesting, isn't it, how rapport has to be established before you mm. can get to sort of like break that bubble of, you know, thing. And I'm interested that you actually brought it up because sometimes, mm. you know, um, a line in one person's mouth can actually sort of kill and destroy in a good way and in another way another person's mouth it can just mm. kill and and cut the person to bits so what is it that 
makes the difference between somebody who can actually deliver the line in a way that will be seen as affectionate and somebody who will step all over it? Well, I think it, it, it so much depends on the character, doesn't it? Uh, of both people, of both the joker and the jokey, because we all, I mean, what, one of the great things about humour is that it unites people. Um, if you have the same sense of humour, as we know, if you have the same sense of humour as the bloke sitting next to you with a glass of white wine in his hand, um, then you know, you're likely to like his jokes and vice versa, because you're likely to like the same sort of triggers. You're likely to think of the same sort of things that one thing leads to another. Um, and I mean, I know a lot of people are so deadpan about it, so serious about it, even when they are actually trying to be um, dry with their humor. But actually, if you don't know them, <laughs> you know, if you don't know them that well, if you don't understand that, the things they say are just offensive. So this is, you know, already, this is one of the fine lines that you have to think about and how you deliver your lines. I mean, what, and one, of, one of the great things nowadays, of course, is that because a lot of communication, sadly, is done uh, with the right thumb or forefinger and it ends up on a little screen in front of someone and whatever nice little pictures you throw, well, in fact, you have to send little pictures to sort of try and create a mood anyway. So you just put black and white words down. The number of times I've been misunderstood um, and of course, you know, let's, let's not get yet into sort of the greater arguments about Twitter and Instagram and all sorts, you know, but sort of the, the things people put out there. But the number of times you can be mis misunderstood, even by people who know you well, you know, your nearest and dearest, who have to clarify what you've just said in black and white. If you've got an expression on your face, um, you know, that mischievous or you know, genuinely happy, you know, the, the person opposite you knows exactly at that moment that you're not just being nasty and that the line is you know, designed to be fun. Do you think that in order to lead well, you have to be face to face with people? You have to be connected with them. Yeah, I, I, actually, I, I do. I think, um, I mean, my my own experience of captaincy all those years ago, I would look back on that, and in fact, one of the failings I would look at myself and say was the uh, number of times I didn't personally go and speak to someone, or didn't have that one to one with someone that they probably needed at the time. You know, a lot of collective talks, uh, a lot of casual talks, yes, and if people come to you, that's easy, of course, but sometimes as a leader, you need to be able to, so we say, spot the signs and have a quiet moment with someone of your own making so that they know that you're thinking about them. And um, this is not necessarily a moment for humor, but this is just sort of human sympathy, empathy, and understanding. So I think the, and none of that can work by text or WhatsApp or any of these things. I mean, that's just hopeless. Uh, and I mean, I know from my own personal experience the last few years as the receiver of messages, um, and I'd rather not sort of go into details as to who was sending them or why, but you know, as a receiver of messages that were blunt, um, that created unnecessary friction. And if I, and I even once, I mean, I replied to one of these things, should I, should we talk about this and got the answer no. Um, and that to me was an example of management at its lowest ebb. Because if, if, you, if you're working, I mean, these, these are people you know, you're going to be working with, you, you're, okay, you're working for, but with. And if you've got that sort of situation and someone is saying to you, we should talk about this, then the one thing you have to do is talk about this.
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, it, I, I, do you know the Morabian model where Professor Morabian did the pie chart of how people took on information? And the smallest piece of the pie, 7%, was the actual words. 38% right. of that was actually um, the, um, the, the way you said it. The ums, the ahs, the inflection and everything. And 55% of it was the body language, i.e. how mm. you looked. You know, well, you just mm. said, you know, your, your eyes had a sort of cheekiness about them. People can yeah. see that. Ever since we were children, we've been reading faces. So why would people think that we wouldn't, that wouldn't be important in the mix anymore? And I think it's really valuable mm. for all our listeners to do it, that somebody as successful as you spots that and can see it in management happening all the time. Yeah, again, sometimes one of the key problems, of course, with um, management is that one is often, and in, in terms, okay, in terms of sport, in terms of, say, for instance, using my own life and experiences as an example quickly, you are put into a role as England captain, which is a very public role. Um, and you are, okay, you might be amongst friends in the sense that the people closest to you in that environment are another 10 people who play cricket, most of whom you know pretty well. Um, but inevitably in an England team, for instance, there'll be two or three coming in who don't know you well. Um, you know, they have a, an image of you and you can try and break that, you know, you can try and relax them with hopefully well-chosen uh, lightheartedness, but you need to impress them most with your skills as a leader uh, your judgment as a, uh, a decision maker. I mean, all the things, I mean, there's a whole list of stuff, of course, but, you know, that, that all the things that actually will make you a good leader at the end of it. Um, and communication is simply the, you know, the, the best tool um, and the hardest. You know, it's the best, but the hardest sometimes to manage. And who, you've been on both sides of it as the leader and as the receiver. Um, I mean, you may want to name names, you may not. Who's been the best at that and why? What were they doing that was different and better? Yeah, the, the, the easy answer to that is that my first two captains uh, of professional cricket teams were Railingworth at Leicestershire, so a tough uh, Yorkshire, England captain, uh, some years my senior, um, who knew the game intimately, you know, was respected as a great leader. We had a sort of I don't know, sort of uncle-nephew type relationship because of the age gap, but it was a very friendly one. It was a very respectful one. Uh, and we used humour, actually, you know, between us, you know, we used humour um, to get messages across. I mean, for instance, there's, there's a story I've told a million times, but it goes something like this. First couple of years playing at Leicestershire for the first team under his guidance. And, you know, the cricket was going well. I was doing everything that I was told to. I was learning rapidly. I was getting better. But being sort of whatever, what was I, sort of 18, 19, 20 years old at the time, dress sense was a little varied. And we had a sort of a code of you know, smart casual. So I pitched up at Nottingham one day, having got up in Leicester in a hurry, slightly late, got dressed in a hurry, driven the speed of light legally um, to Nottingham and looked at my shoes in the dressing room, one brown one, one black one, thinking, ah, um, damn. Uh, Illy... You know, said, well, we need to, you know, we need to sharpen up a bit. He said, would you mind just making a bit of an effort to you know, smarten yourself up a bit? So next away game, following weekend, we go to Taunton to play Somerset. And I took with me the full dinner suit. So I had this, I mean, bearing in mind, this is the, the late 1970s. It's not something I'd like to wear nowadays. It was lots of blue velvet and frills and ruffles and God knows what else. 
But on the Sunday morning, so Saturday night out, Sunday morning, we got to two o'clock to play the game. The game starts at two. I arrived at breakfast in the full dinner kit. So this ruffled shirt, bow tie, blue velvet dinner suit, black shoes, looking immaculate. Raymond looked up from his fried eggs and bacon and sausage and baked beans and said, bloody hell, Gower, have you just come in? <laughs> which, which actually was a, I thought was a bloody good line at the time. Um, and I wish right, I'd man. had the presence of mind and the confidence to say, well, yeah, it's good enough for Dennis Compton. It's good enough for me. So, um, you know, Compton had this great reputation of being, you know, one of life's bon viveurs and coming in in some sort of state of dishevelment and still scoring 100 before lunch at Lord's. So there were little things like that where, you know, we just established the relationship. Um, and of course, in between, there's some very serious messages that have to be relayed. But the other great benefit for me was my first England captain was Mike Brearley, who is you know, trained in all sorts of things, psychological, psychiatric, and all the rest of it. He was a very, very good man and was described by one of our opposition as uh, the man with the, you know, one of the Aussies, actually. I think it might have been Rodney Hogg who called him, he's, he is a man with a degree in people. So you had Mike, who was basically trained to look into people's minds. Um, and he was very good at those one-to-ones, very good at taking you aside, you maybe casually, maybe a sort of a structured meeting and checking that things were okay and anything he wanted to tell the players, he would tell. So I started really on a very high bar there with two guys who were both respected and very good at it. And the interesting thing actually is that as you become more yourself and you learn more about the game and all the rest of it and you're actually being thrust into the role yourself you start to see your captains as less godlike and more human because you're now understanding that there are other ways to do things I mean, the first two guys those first two captains you believed in essence every word they told you so every decision they made of course was right as you go through your life you start to question people's decision making for the right reasons not just to be um, you know a disruptor as such but you do it because you know more yourself so um, I think it was, I mean, I think it was a really good thing that I started with those two because they set some very good boundaries early on. Well, that, that, I mean, marvellous. And I, I mean, I think Brearley was highly praised by everybody for, mm. I love the fact that he had a degree in people was the quote. Mm. I think that's, sort of thing. but surely all great leaders should be concentrating on their people rather than just the bottom line of their business. And isn't that what's happening in business more and more? The bottom line is getting in the way of actually, uh, actually how people operate and getting the best out of them. I actually had a, an open door policy. I mean, one of the key things that I thought was good was that if I, I mean, I tried to instill what should we call it, a sense of responsibility in everyone who played or came on tour. So as an example, team meetings, so those, you, know, you know, the management meeting or team meeting before a big game. I didn't want it just to be me talking to the group about my plans for them. I wanted them to be as interactive as possible with their plans for what they were going to do with me sort of just guiding on top of that. Now, some people might call that laissez-faire. Some people might say that can go wrong if the wrong people seem to be pulling the wrong strings. But... I thought the great thing about that was that people would benefit from feeling, should we say, bigger than they were, maybe, or feeling that you know they you know, that responsibility gave them power. And I remember again using an example of India, um, 84, 85. We went to India with a team that was not at full strength for various political reasons. So one or two key people like Princess Graham Gooch, John Embry, Ian both are missing. But the people that came in bought into what we had to do. And for instance, one, one good example, um, Graham Fowler uh, from Lancashire 
who was a very talented opening batsman, um, but had limited opportunities. And was I mean, <laughs> his worst problem was he looked about 12. So people treated him as a child. Um, and he had that, I mean, talk of humour, he had that impish humour that he might have overdone at times, but he was always cracking gags. And he was always that cheeky chap. So again, some people didn't take him seriously because of it. But I said to him, you know, as part of this strategy of mine, well, okay, you just think little things like, for instance, practice sessions, you know, a couple of days before a game. Do you want a net? Do you want to do this? You know, you're in your, you know, it's in your power to decide how you want to prepare for this. I'm not going to tell you how to prepare. Uh, whatever you think is good for you, please do it, uh, in effect. And it was the first time he'd been given a sense of self-responsibility. So at the end of that tour, he got a double hundred against India in what was then Madras, now Chennai. And he did a seriously good job for us. And he came to me at the end of the tour, one of the proudest moments of my captaincy in a sense, and said, thank you very much indeed, because it was the first time someone gave me responsibility and I felt like a grown up in this team. So it doesn't work with everyone. Some people need to be steered more than that. Um, but that to me was, um, should we say an endorsement that uh, at least my idea had one supporter, <laughs> hopefully a few more. So I mean, it's just one example of many. No, I, I actually have a, a theory that uh, as well as uh, great leaders laughing with people, great leaders are great listeners and therefore mm. they know what each person needs. And so you are essentially listening to that person and instinctively or, or you knew that he mm. needed responsibility. He needed to feel like a grown up, when he put it. And I think that is what leadership is about, is about feeling that, having that lightness of touch, because the Humorology Project is all about humour, obviously, but good humour, lightness of touch, the way we interact, it's all the same thing. Is there any sledging or heckling that you've heard that really did make you laugh when you are on the pitch? Oh, hang on, there are... Uh... <laughs> Um, there are <laughs> there are some you can't really use in public, to be honest, um, and I'm afraid this counts as public. But yes. um, th there was one, uh, as it's you. I mean, there's, there's one fairly. It's, it's very close to the mark. Um, Ian Both and Rod Marsh. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's so many stories with Ian, but allegedly Ian walks out to bat one day in a Test match. This has got to be by definition, sort of early '80s, late '70s, say. Um, Bacchus, Rod Marsh's nickname was Bacchus, comes up behind the stumps and says, "Good day, mate. How's how's your wife and my kids?" And you know, which is somewhat under the belt, but it was was part of the course in those days. And Ian, as alleged to have said, "Well, the wife's fine. The kids are, shall we say, um, mentally um, not very well." You know, so it was you know, as a word we don't use nowadays. Yes. Um, and whether or not the story is true doesn't really matter. It's all about sort of, you know, the, the, the repartee and the comeback and the sort of speed of thought and all the rest of it. Too many of them um, don't really sort of bear repeating in public, but a lot of them did make you laugh, yeah. Now we have to actually edit ourselves, don't we? Mm. Where we going, I can't say that anymore. Yeah, I mean... But it was of its time. And, and by the way, I was talking to Joe Brand about this, that, that it's actually, we learned over the years that it wasn't, the, how funny the comeback was. It was how well it was timed. And if it mm. was funny as well, it, it was an added bonus. So it was all mm. about the timing and also all about the state of the person doing it. I'm not phased by this mm. is what you're trying to say. To yeah, I mean, I mean that, that thing about this thing we call sledging, you know, basically, which is, 
Yeah, it's it's banter at best. It's verbal abuse at worst. It was what Steve Waugh once called mental disintegration. And it's, I have a nasty feeling it's gone to a degree nowadays whereby people never shut up. But I, mean, I remember pretty clearly when I first played Test Cricket in Australia, it was late 70s. And then we had, we had a tour where there was this thing called World Series Cricket on, which was Paco, which took away some of the best players, a lot of the best players. The following winter, we were back there again with some of the great names up against us of Australian cricket of that era. So Ian Chappell, Greg Chappell, Rod Marsh, um, Dennis Lilly, um, you know, Jeff Thompson, all these people. And the, the sledging thing was, you know, they, they would say stuff as you came in. Yeah, yeah, and you sort of look at them quizzically. And, but the simple rule was that if I, as an individual, for instance, got in, got runs, and was you know, looking fine and happy, and you know, it just went quiet. And they didn't waste their breath, you know, just sledging for the sake of it. You know, it was designed initially to put you ill at ease, to make you ill at ease. And they genuinely, I mean, they, they in their own way were sort of psychologists because they looked at people and they realized that there were some who would take it worse. You know, they realized there were some in our, amongst our number who would be more ill at ease because of it. And then it wouldn't stop. Then it becomes, you know, that's genuine pressure being pushed onto an individual who is out there you know, one of two against 11 at that precise moment. So you, you only have your one ally at the other end. So you go and talk to your mates at the end of the over and say, what's going on here then? You know, sort of, and they'll try and build you back up again. Well, I think that's fascinating. Um, what makes you laugh, David? All sorts. Um, I like well-chosen words. I like, you know, sort of that quick moment to where you, someone says something, you think of something funny or vice versa. And, you know, the sort of the quick reaction uh, and it can be anytime any place anywhere it's not just me when you're sitting down having a drink and trying to have fun i mean for instance we have um you know, my two, the two sort of major parts of my career so playing cricket for 18 years um broadcasting for 30 whatever it is um you know in amongst those commentary boxes for instance for the last 30 years we've had all sorts of great characters some of them are great mates um and there are so many funny lines. You, there, you know, there is the stuff that is said off air, sometimes while you're working on air, and you hear this comment in the background, yeah, yeah, funny, very funny. Um, but that, that's how we interact. I mean, that's, how, that's why those places are very good places to be, because you have this sort of um, dressing room atmosphere. It's, it's like just taking the dressing room into a commentary box. Same people, same giggles, same laughter, same silly stuff. And yet you're still doing a job, of course. And if you don't do the job properly and amongst it all, then there might be repercussions. But I mean, there's so many things um, get said. Um, and some of them, you know, are just literally spur of the moment things that come from absolutely nowhere. Um, so, they, you know, and it's just reaction. I mean, I, you know, to think back to them straight away. But for instance, we used to have, here's one for you. When I first went to the BBC, so retiring from playing in 1993, end of the season, and I had a job lined up to do TV and stuff for the BBC, for the next few years after that. Um, and when we started, when I was working with the great Tony Lewis, who was our presenter, very urbane, very educated, very clever, very good, very subtle. Jeffrey uh, Boycott, who's most of the other things, most of the opposites, um, <laughs> but Jeffrey knows that. Um, and yeah, Jeffrey, who was brilliant in his own very different way because he was always the point, you know, there's no sort of hiding from Jeffrey's opinions. We had people like Jack Bannister, very, very good indeed, and the great Richie Bennett, you know, the ultimate cricket broadcaster, Richie Bennett. You know, if you in anyone's book, he's top three, and in most people's books, he's number one. So Richie had lots of drier sides, which he used on air, um, and he had this great skill. I mean, one of the great skills Richie absolutely had was economy of words, but picking the right words. 
nothing too verbose, just you know, uh, four or five words in the right order, brilliant. Um, and you, know, you learn a lot from someone like that. And he carried Fowler's English usage with him at all times. You know, he, he loved language and he thought about it hard. But we had this game where Steve, our floor manager, would say, OK, right, you've got half an hour's commentary coming up. Here are six words I would like you to insert into the next half hour. So the two of you, it might be me and Jeffrey, it might be me and someone. I mean, I remember at, uh, at Trembridge one year, we must have been playing New Zealand. We had Sir Richard Hadley with us as a guest commentator, Paddles. And there were various words we were given for our half hour. And one of the words I was given was suspender belt. Now, under normal circumstances, you're not going to use the term suspender belt in the midst of a test match broadcast between England and New Zealand at Trent Bridge. But I'm sort of racking my brains how to get this in. And we had an opportunity. The only way I could get it in was this. About 20 minutes in, I think it might have been someone like Graham Thorpe, um, but he nudges one almost straight towards the fielder, but he goes for the quick single. So he pushes for the quick single, scampers up the other end quickly and gets in. And I use the expression, quick run single, as cheeky as a suspender belt at midnight. Oh, beautifully done. It was one of the <laughs> proudest moments in my broadcasting career. I mean, it had you know, absolutely no logic whatsoever. I mean, it was just, you know, you know, without that challenge, those words would never, ever have been uttered by me or probably anyone else in terms of a BBC test match broadcast on the TV. Um, but that was one of those things that sort of kind of kept us going. It's like an added challenge. You know, you've got the challenge anyway of describing action entertainingly, uh, with knowledge, you know, with, the, you know, with sort of skill and all the rest of it. But that was just the added challenge we used to have from this guy, Steve, who was very good, be very great fun to work with. That is fabulous. I absolutely mm. love that. Um, <laughs> having worked in all these environments and seen different people, do you think everyone has the potential to be funny or is it a gift only given to the few? I think uh, to be really funny, it's a gift given to the few. Because one of the key elements of humour, good humour, especially in those repartee type situations, is that it has to be quick. So if you have to think about your response, um, then it's not going to work because it's now you know, two, three, four, five seconds down. And you know, if it comes out straight away, the fact that it's come out straight away is both good for you, so your own well-being in the sense, oh, I thought of that straight away, got the line out. Even if it, especially if it works, if it doesn't work, then you just try and dismiss it and bin it for history. But if it takes you too long, then it's, you know, the moment is gone. So what Joe Brand was saying to you, you know, for instance, and Joe's great. We, we work with her, uh, I say we, I mean, it just sounds like I'm an arch comedian, but I mean, when I used to do something called They Think It's All Over with the Beeb, and we oh. had Rory McGrath, who's great, Nick Hancock, Nick who's Hancock. great, Lee Hurst, Jonathan Ross, Gary, Gary Lineker on the other team. Uh, you know, we were amongst great comedians. We were amongst the sharpest minds. And if you get a line in both into the program and into the edit, which is sharp enough and good enough to survive, think, hey, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm there, I'm, I'm up with the big boys now. But the truth is, actually, interesting. I found myself, even in, as it were, rehearsal, even in preparation, thinking of things, well, oh, I can't say that. I can't say that, not with these guys here. And this, again, the context, you know, the confidence to be funny is drawn, I find, entirely from who you're next to, who you're with as to whether or not you have the confidence to throw this line out into the mix because you're maybe it's a status thing you maybe sort of feel as though you are you know not bigger and better but you might have a little bit of seniority so you, you're prepared to try these things and if they work of course yeah we all love it that's yeah it's all part of the 
you know, the happy environment. But I think, you know, as soon as I'm, I mean, the, the, the comparison is this, in terms of cricket, because I was a test player, you know, I was, I was good, I was confident, and I had to back myself to do it. In terms of humour, when I came up against the test players, who are Nick Hancock, Rory McGrath, Jonathan Ross, Lee Hurst, then I'm no, no better than a county or a club player in comparison. Therefore, you know, my shots are gonna be mistimed, miscued. Um, yeah, and that was, that was, I found that very interesting being part of that. And every now and again, you know, magic moment occurs and you go, oh, great. Yeah, nice. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Well, I, it is. I think you're right. Mm. It's it's playing on a new stage mm. and, and with the business. Mm. But it's also, I think it's interesting. You said two words. You said uh, confidence, having the confidence mm. to do that, which I think mm. is key to uh, having uh, and challenging yourself. I think um, the reason people don't do it is because if it goes wrong, it really goes wrong. Yeah, I think, well, you're right. I mean, that, that's why I would sort of cow, you know, cower when I'm amongst people who I know are genuinely funny. It's quite, it's quite funny, actually, with Nick Hancock, who I know very well and love. I mean, he's a lovely guy, Nick. Nick had a slightly different persona, but he was the boss. You know? And so we would go out and have dinner sometimes, um, at, you know, other days. And I would be more confident to, you know, to throw lines in. And he almost, you know, a few times, said, no, hang on, I'm the, I'm the funny bloke here. As if to say, hang on, what are you doing trying to because we're out together. You know, this is now where I can be more confident. I can be me now, not someone on TV who's playing second fiddle. So you have that sort of dynamic as well. Um, but again, if you're with the right sort of people, and I mean, I, you know, through this life, you meet a lot of very good people. So you know, we meet, I mean, one of the great people I think on TV at the moment is David Mitchell, who is a friend of a friend. I've seen him over dinner a few times. 
Um, and you, you get stuck, you have a lot of fun because David is brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant, very, very funny, you know, on and off screen. Um, but, you, but he's nice enough that you feel you can sort of try and be part of it, if you see what I mean. So you have a, a bit of uh, back and forth and you, you think of funny things to say and they're not just dismissed, you know. So you, you almost get up to parity, almost sort of almost get to equal status. And people like that are great because you can have a lot of fun with them. Um, certainly you know, easier for me, I can tell you that. But what is it about people who make us laugh that, that draws us in so much? What, uh, what is that secret source that, that they have? Why is it so powerful? Is it, is it a superpower? It is. Um, I'm sure it is. I mean, one can be impressed by power, to use that word, um, by personality, by academics, by those with huge knowledge. I mean, I'm going back to the, the example, for instance, of Rory, Rory McGrath. Rory has an extraordinary capacity. You've got an extraordinary brain. Um, you know, double first at Cambridge in languages. So, I mean, languages are a doddle. But snippets of information, which, for instance, we went to Australia once to do a, a thing for the BBC, a travel thing. Uh, we were going to be in a camper van for a week in Queensland. And he basically stage managed the whole thing himself. You know, he took over production. But on the flight there, he bought one of these little books, which has every country in the world, gross national product, capital city, population. And he said, right, test me. You know, let's just go through this, you know, just test me, anything you like. And he loves acquiring knowledge. Birds, he's, he's a great bird watcher, um, you know, a twitcher, as it were. So, you know, the Latin names of birds and all the rest of it. You know, he doesn't just say, right, that's a blue tit. He'll give you the Latin name, you know, um, Seagull, Laris Argentatus, you know, Silverback Gull, whatever it is, you know, that sort of stuff. And you sit with Rory, you learn everything. Um, so you can be impressed with Rory because he is both very knowledgeable, therefore very interesting. And you can't argue with him because he knows everything. But you can, you know, he'll make you laugh all the time as well. And he has that generosity of spirit that you're never looked down upon either. So, I mean, I've loved my times, uh, sadly, a long time ago now with Rory doing those things. We did one of those trips to Australia. We did one to California. Um, we did one in India in a hotel, in the, in the Taj Hotel, working as, as butlers in the Taj, where humour was absolutely essential. You know, we needed all the humour to make that really work. And I mean, I loved him for it. Yeah, um, but you, you, people that make you laugh like that, you, know, you can be you can be told a joke by anyone, and if it's a good joke, you can still laugh. But people with whom you feel you have some sort of synergy, so that you know, you're not just listening to a joke and laughing politely. You're listening to a joke, and you come back with something because you know he's going to like that, and you're thinking you're going to go for hours because you know you go into these down these alleyways and down these paths and into realms you've never thought of before because you're on that same page, and that's where that's where when you identify even someone on television, you you identify people who have that same way of thinking um yeah and books you know so the books one reads the same thing you know that you're going to get something from that which chimes with your own way of looking at life so what would the world be like without humor david dull um hugely dull very gray um i mean you, you know that you, you know you're having a bad day when you haven't had a laugh at any stage or found something funny um and i think I mean, whether it's professional or amateur or just, you know, part of the, the fabric that keeps us going, you know, without, without that smile, because I mean, apart from anything else, we're, we're, we read and we're told that, you know, the actual physical act of smiling is good for us. It is. And that laughing is good for us. Um, and I can imagine, you know, I, you know, in your trade, for instance, I mean, you would, I'm sure you'd 
endorse that wholly. Um, and I can imagine, I, mean, I know, for instance, okay, if we're, if we're talking, you know, dark days, um, we've all had dark days for various reasons, you know, professionally, emotionally, whatever it might be. And you're in no danger of smiling, let alone laughing. And it takes someone maybe to you know, just help you maybe get from here to here to here. And if you, if, if that's, you know, whether it's a joke or a, an aside or just a, a smile coming at you, um, which helps you realize that a, there's someone else who's on your side and B, that they, you, know, you can still do it. I mean, that those are, you know, those are, we're talking about the ultimate dark days here. I mean, those, that, that, that whole mechanism of getting yourself from rock bottom up to somewhere acceptable and then sort of back to normal again, um, involves a smile. Yeah, and it changes the structure of the brain. Just, I mean, mm. the mere act of smiling. In fact, mm. there was a study in America whereby they gave people SSRIs, which are serotonin uptake, uh, reuptake inhibitors, which and the thing, and they gave half the group those SSRIs and the other half the group just an instruction to go and smile in a mirror for five minutes mm. in the morning and in the evening. And they followed the brain patterns and it was exactly the same. So you can actually create your own drugs in your, your mind to make yourself happy. So you're quite right that it does change mm. the structure of the, the mind. You've had to learn and relearn skills over the years in cricket and broadcasting and living in different parts of the world and, of course, even school. Um, have you found that the things you've learned most easily have been connected to humour or fun? The best way I can answer that is that, for instance, learning to play sport, kind of key for me um but learning a sport not just cricket but things like you know all the other sports i've played at school football and hockey and rugby and squash and tennis in doing that the more you enjoy it very straightforward sort of upward spiral the more you enjoy it the more you want to do it the more you want to do it the better you get the better you get the more you enjoy it and that spiral keeps going on yeah you know, there is obviously a limit for most people um, there's only so much, you know, so much progress one can make in a certain field, you know, especially in sport. But yes, yeah, so creating for people around you, I mean, for instance, at school, for people around you to create the right atmosphere for you to want to do that. I mean, I had two brilliant cricket masters, both at my first school, which is Marlborough House in Hawkehurst in Kent, and at King's Canterbury. Um, Derek Whitson was the cricket master at Marlborough House. And he let me get on with it and was, was always supportive. And I just loved it. Um, a fellow called Colin Fairservice was the long established cricket coach, um, head of cricket at King's Canterbury. And he umpired and all the rest of it and stood there with a trilby on. And you know, he was brilliant. You know, we got on so well. And you know, the, the environment again was perfect for me. And there would have been laughs. There would have been strictures. Yeah, of course, you're you know, being taught to acquire skills. Therefore, you're not just going to go rampaging through it as without some sort of guidance. So, I mean, and they were happy days. I mean, they, they were just happy days. So, I mean, there is definitely a link. I mean, if, you, if you're, the, the other side of that, not saying coin necessarily, but the other side of that is if you're a proud parent and you want to force your child to become a cricketer and your child doesn't want to do it, it's not fun, it's not gonna learn, it's not gonna get better. You know, so you've got, you've got to follow, you know, you've got to follow the natural paths uh, for, to make it easier. And when I guess at some stage, we sometimes have to be a bit more grown up and follow paths we don't necessarily want to follow, but we have to follow them. But in my case, you know, so the joy of playing sport was all I needed. 
Well, yeah, isn't it a case of, you know, if if you find something you love doing, mm. you'll never work a di another day in your life. But again, really? yeah, but if you're going, but if, if you're going into, should we say, to use a pejorative term, a job, <laughs> because all the things I've done um, so-called professionally, you know, they've not felt in the sense like a job because they've been you know, fun to do, basically. You know. um, yes, I've taken them seriously. You can't make a lot of runs without taking it seriously and you can't remain in broadcasting fronting up a program for 20 odd years without taking it seriously and I've always always try to set high standards for myself and um, but I've always had that sort of quirky sense of humor in amongst it so you know for instance every time we went live on sky um, when the count gets down from 10 to 9 to 8 at about 5 my mantra was what could possibly as in what could possibly go wrong <laughs> echoed in the truck by director you know, and here we go fine we're now you know so you preempt, you kind of preempt it. Um, and all that was fun. I mean, all that was lovely. Um, and therefore we were able to let the humor come in and you know, it was all part of the gig. So that, that, that's, that's an ideal. Um, and I, I do sympathize that and understand that there are lots of people in jobs that don't necessarily come with built-in fun, but and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pick a job at random and insult anyone here, you know, but if you're in a job which is not necessarily fun in the job description, it can be made more interesting and more bearable by the people around you if they're prepared to be nice and have fun and crack a joke and be characters and make the most of whatever that environment is. Yeah, I think you're hundred percent right. I think there's uh, the, the it adds resilience to the whole thing mm. and any job. But by the way, when I uh, when I was young and uh, sort of you know trying to earn money before going abroad and, uh, and everything, I did jobs. I worked for six weeks on a building site, and actually it was fun. Mm. And because we decided it was fun, and we had a group of people who we liked, and you know they were all students doing the same kind of thing. So you can build. Mm. I think you can build fun into any business. Yeah. So, yeah. so if I were to ask you to write a business case for humour, <laughs> uh, what would you include? What, if you, because I've, we've got to go to all these CEOs and say, mm. you've got to build fun in. Why will they want to build fun into their business? Right, great question. No easier. I mean, I would say because, right, you're building a business and you're building a business on people then very straightforwardly, you want those people to get up in the morning and want to go to work. So why would you want to go to work? Okay, you might be earning money. It might be as simple as that. But if you, want to, if you really want to go to work, it's because you think when I get there, I'm gonna be with like-minded people, with good people. Um, it's gonna be interesting. Um, we're gonna be allowed to smile. If, if for instance, there were ever an environment where you're not allowed to smile, um, and jokes are banned. Why would you want to go there? You know, why why would you physically, mentally want to go there? You might have to. Yeah. Um, I can imagine that, sadly. But why would you want to go there? So if you're trying to build a business case, um, and all the stories you read of you know so many successful companies, I mean, it's not just about putting you know, a ping pong table in the side or you know uh, funny pictures up on the walls or I don't know. There are so many things you read about, but. Um, it's about creating that environment where someone comes to work thinking, I want to see John, I want to see Sarah, I want to see Reg, I want to see Julie, because they're good people, we work well together, and because we work well together, we get the job done, and we leave there at the end of the day, we might be tired, it might, but we're, we're smiling. And when we come back tomorrow, 
we want to be with these same people again. So your surely your you know, ambition as a leader of any sort of team, be it four people, four hundred people, or four thousand people or more, is to know that they are on side with you for all the right reasons, but you know that they're going to want to come to work. So that, that would be my simplest way of putting it. People have to want to come to work. I, and I wonder if, because I've talked to, um, I won't name names, but managers in other sports who have actually stopped people coming into the dressing room because they are disruptive or not mm -hmm. funny or brought the wrong atmosphere. Have you ever come up against that? And, and what advice do you give to people about that? No, I've not really seen anyone banned. What you do see, sadly, is that for instance, in the context of an England team, so you've got, I mean, county teams, well, you know, any team, I guess, will operate in the same way. But in a, for instance, in an England team, and for instance, if you're picking 16 people to go away for four months in Australia or, more, or four months in India, whatever it might be, as we used to, those 16 people plus the staff around have to be able to get on. Um, there are always going to be characters who are not necessarily as gregarious, and it depends how you deal with them individually. But you know, I, and again, not naming names, I have known uh, way back in the past of people being not selected because there was that worry about you know, how they're going to fit in for four months as part of that squad. Um, and that's you know, that's it's normally borderline cases because there is that same thing that if you're seriously good then people will make allowances for you. And if you're, you know, if you're scoring 150 for England in Sydney, even if your joke as you come off the field falls completely flat because people don't like you, they'll go well played because you've just got 150. So, I mean, there, is, there's a, there can be a bit of a trade-off. I mean, let's face it, none of us, there is no one who is both extremely 100% gifted as a sportsman, leader, business, you name it, and stand-up comedian at the same time. But a lot of people get a lot of those elements pretty much right pretty much most of the time. So, you know, those are the people you love and respect because they have this automatic balance between the job, life, and how you enjoy life. And I think you know, it's, it's, for some people, that's a very tricky balance. For others, it seems to fall into place all too easily. And those are the ones you both admire and hate. <laughs> they make it... <laughs> Yeah, well, no, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think you're quite right. Um, we've come to the part of the show now called <laughs> Quick Fire Questions. Quick Fire Questions! Who's the funniest business person you've met? All right, TV is a business, let's face it. TV is yes, a business. Is. Um, and uh, yeah, Rory McGrath. There you go. No, but it, I love Roy's. I love Roy's humour. I mean, it's 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 not just about telling jokes. It is about all those things we've talked about. You know, all, all about sort of the instant reaction. Um, you know, the, the, it's it's just fun to be with. You know, that, so that's that's that, that's a business. That is definitely a business. Comedy is definitely a business. Absolutely no, and uh, Rory is hilarious. Mm. What book makes you laugh? Um, I love. I mean, the authors I love to make me laugh. Uh, were Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett, um, Tom Sharp, Saki, Woodhouse. Um, as we speak, uh, I'm not actually reading it at this precise moment, but uh, when we finished, I'm reading a, I'm rereading a Terry Pratchett. Terry, I thought was absolutely brilliant. Just those little sentences, those little asides, those little things that, you know, you look at it, you think, 
it's six very simple words, but they are brilliantly, brilliantly put in the right place at the right time. And I just, you, every page has something on it from Terry. Oh, great. I, I, to be honest, I, I will look Terry. I know he's one of the most popular authors in the world, mm. but I've never mm. read a Terry Pratchett. But now well, there I'm, you are. Going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to give it a go because of your recommendation. Good man. What film makes you laugh? One of my early, uh, Monty Python. Um, I love the Pythons. Um, and therefore it's a toss up between Life of Brian and the Holy Grail. Yes, Life of Brian has come back up on this series so many times. I I'm think sure. it is the perfect film, mm. isn't it, really? Mm. And mm. it doesn't date because it's set in, um, in 2000 years ago. Um, <laughs> uh, which, which kind of helps. Yeah, they were, um, no, they were brilliant. I loved, I loved the Pythons, yeah. I, I, I think it's pure genius. It's pure genius. Um, now we're going to take a shift to the other side. What mm. in life is not funny? Is there anything that you don't think that can be seen as funny or anything personal well, that you don't find? Yeah, well, I, I think what's not funny, you know, actually there's a lot, isn't there, sadly? Um, I mean, looking, all you have to do is follow a news bulletin. Um, inevitably, most news is tragic for someone uh, in some shape or form. And we don't have to look far, do we, in this current era, it's the last 18 months for stuff that's been suitably tragic or unsuitably yeah. tragic. Um, and I'm sure, having said that, I mean, one would be ever so careful um, with death, um, divorce, um, personal tragedy, um, anyone who's having a rough time for whatever reason. Um, you know, there are lots of things that you would maybe think of a funny line, but uh, if you've got any decency, you'd shut it down there and then. Uh, the only thing I'd say about that is if we're talking about things like, um, you know, there's personal problems, you know, bereavement, divorce, all those things, all those things that are at the top of the list as being real testers for individuals. If you're a good friend of someone who's just suffered from such an event, what are you going to try and do? You're going to try and you know, get the smile back on her face. So however you do it, and it might take a few attempts and it might, you know, some of them might fail, but you, know, you want to try and get people. I mean, my natural instinct would be to get people back up there. And for instance, when I've, you know, as a reasonably sane, I think, and good example, I've given the odd, um, encomium at a funeral and I've listened to a few and I much prefer the ones where the fun times are remembered where the stories are told um, and there was uh, I gave one um, eulogy for a fellow called Tim Stanley Clark who was revered in the wine trade he's worked for the Symington family in Portugal basically sold thousands of bottles hundreds of thousands of bottles of port and many other things through his career great practical joker such huge fun to be with Tim. And we had so many great times with him in clubs in London, in Portugal, up in the Dura Valley, uh, Porto. Um, such a good man. Now, I was asked to give uh, the eulogy. So much material. People were throwing stuff at me. So, you know, well, right, this week, we've got to tell this story. We've got to tell that story. And it was, you know, and it was a huge packed house um, in a huge church. And if, you know, it's, so it's a performance, yes. But I would have been very disappointed in myself if I'd just given a sort of, you know, 
dear Tim, we miss him. Um, it had to be, and you know, it had to be good. It had to be entertaining. And his brother-in-law did the same thing. Got a fantastic eulogy as well. And I ended, I think, I ended. I had a pit flask in my inner pocket, in my suit pocket. And I said to the vicar, "You don't mind, do you? I'd like to be the first to raise a toast." So, hit flask, lips. Here's to Tim. And I, I loved doing that. You know, my voice is kind of breaking because, of course, it's, you know, it's an emotional time. But that was how I had to do it. Yeah, and and. Uh, have you ever seen, you talked about the Pythons, have you ever seen mm. that John Cleese's eulogy for Graham Chapman, who is his greatest friend? Oh, and, no, I haven't. No, yeah. Well, I'd, I'll, I'd advise you, I'll send it to you on yeah, it's a I'm YouTube sure link. But, yeah. but what yeah. he does is he goes completely against the grain. And mm. it starts out with, you know, he was a good man, he was a wonderful mm. man, and, and, that, and then he goes, but no. The yes. snivelling bastard, you know, and then he goes yeah, into, yeah. and you, it cuts to the shot of the audience <laughs> who are shocked and then burst it because it's a big, big sort of release. It's the, it's what he would have wanted line, isn't it? Yeah. Because well, you know these people intimately and you know that, you know, Graham Chapman, genius of his own sort, you know, wouldn't have wanted John to stand up and going, oh, you know, we miss him. You know, they, they, you know, it, I know it's ridiculous because you know, one of them's dead um, and he's not going to listen to it. I mean, in a sense, um, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not. You want to listen to your own encomiums before you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One more laugh before I go, you know. Um, I mean, here do we you are want to get to edit again. them? Do you, do you well, want to get to get? <laughs> well, right. I like that bit, but yeah, could yeah, we leave? Do you mind leaving that bit out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'll, I'll feel better if you leave. You know, you'll be dead. Um, I don't know. I, I think you. Yeah, I think the. I mean, but I think for all concerned, I mean, because I mean, we've all been to funerals where, obviously, the underlying emotion is a sort of gripping sadness, where. But that can be relieved by the right person at the right time, saying the right things. You can change the entire mood, and you think then you sort of then you go to the, you know, the, the cup of tea and the sandwiches, thinking, do you know what? That was great. Yeah. That was you know that was, that was great. Well, I think to bring laughter in that situation is a real talent, and I think it actually does change the structure of mm. the event. And frankly, who wouldn't like people? to be mm. in a remembering people in a good way is what I think. And, and, and remembering them for the fun they had with them, mm. I think is probably the biggest, the best testament oh, you yeah. can do. Yeah. What word makes you laugh? <laughs> <laughs> Moist. <laughs> but, it, no, but it's a funny word. It is a funny well, word. But you can imagine, but in the hands of a master, <laughs> you know, a master comedian, um, you know, Blackadder or something, you know, you just you get infinite mileage out of it. Oh, absolutely. Mileage out of moist, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. Would you rather be considered clever or funny, David? Well, I'd love both. Um, I think at this stage we've probably done clever. I think I mean, you know, we've been seen through there. So just yeah, if I can be seen as amusing, yeah, that would do. That would do. Amusing and witty, you'll take. I like a... witty. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be witty. I mean, on, on a good day, I'll do witty. 
Okay. Um, yeah, no, yeah, no, witty, witty and amusing. That's good. Yeah. So, you know, rip roaringly funny. That's probably too much. But amusing, amusing and witty in any order will do me very nicely. Well, I, I'd say as a psychologist that that in order to be amusing and witty, you have to be clever. Because I actually think the way the yeah. brain works, you talked to uh, about Rory and McGrath, mm. the other thing, who's also very intelligent and very witty. And I think the two mm. things collide um, most of the time. Yeah, they do. Um, inevitably, the best, you know, the best comedians are knowledgeable and clever and obviously quick. Yes, you know, that sharpness of mind, as you say, that allows them to do what they do so well. And that would be great if one could match it. Um, so yes, you're right. You do need to be, but there, you know, there, there are degrees of clever, um, I guess, and they're you know, sort of clever with knowledge. You can be, you can be clever without knowledge, I guess, um, but clever with knowledge could be very dangerous. Oh, oh gosh, yeah, <laughs> that could be. Might be clever. No, clever without knowledge could be even more dangerous. But yeah, uh, yeah. One can. Well, 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 let's put it this way: one can but aspire. Uh, I think you're there. I think you're there. And finally, desert island gags. Ah, you can, ooh, yeah. you can, you can only take one joke with you to a desert island. What is it? <laughs> uh, I haven't got a clue. Right, here's a joke for you. It's not very good, but it'll have to do. I'll tell it to myself three million times until that steamer hoves into view on the horizon, and my bottle with a notion it reaches it. And it goes something like this. Um, what does the seagull say when he flies into a cliff? Fuck! <laughs> you see, I think that's very funny. And I haven't heard that Jack gag before. And I, <laughs> hey! Hey! I, I, that. Uh, and we ended on a hard K, which is that's always funny. Um, thank you so much for sharing the funny, the front foot, and the fun. David Gower, thank you so much. Paul, pleasure, pleasure. The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>